0: Well, good evening. A bit more interaction in the morning services. Good evening. There we go. Uh, If we've not yet met, my name is Becca Fairley, and I am a member of the preaching team here at Holy Trinity. Uh, And as Ben was saying, tonight is the first in a sermon series where we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of this first book in the Bible, Genesis And one of the reasons we're doing this is because Genesis sets the scene for the entire Bible. And the way that you understand and read Genesis directly impacts, therefore, the way that you understand and read the rest of the Bible, which in turn directly impacts your faith. So it's pretty important, can I suggest? I think at this point, therefore, it might be pertinent to ask for the Lord's help as we start. So will you pray for me, well, for me and with me as we start? Let's pray. Creator God, thank you that you are alive and that you long to talk to each and every one of us tonight. Would you give us ears to hear what it is you are saying? In Jesus' name and for his glory, Amen. If you've been in church for any length of time, chances are you'll have maybe one or two possibly quite big questions about Genesis. Particularly, can I suggest, about Genesis 1. Maybe you are curious about the relationship between science and faith. How do those two things sit together? Maybe you've read this text and you're just A little bit unsure as to how to take it. Should I take it literally? Is this what actually happened or is it some kind of myth? What do I do with this passage? If you're a parent, you may have faced questions such as, were Adam and Eve actual people? Why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? And if you're anything like me over this past week, this actually happened. Mummy, why don't snakes talk anymore? At this point, I said, it's far too early in the morning. I need to eat my porridge. Go and ask your children's church leaders. We bless you. Let me start by saying that tonight's sermon, I'm afraid, won't address all of these questions. It will touch on some of them, but spoiler alert dinosaurs will not be making an appearance. I apologise. Um, Some of you who are here, I know because we live in Cambridge, will really want to grapple with the whole science faith question. Brilliant questions. Can I offer you two resources if that is you? The first resource is our vicar, Stuart. (laughs) He's got a little name label. He's at the front here. Um, I studied theology at university. Stuart studied natural sciences, specializing in chemistry. He assures me that he would like nothing more than to have discussions with a capital D with anyone who would like to talk more about the whole science-faith thing. He's done a lot of reading on it. He really enjoys talking about it. Stuart is your man. If you are curious but not quite ready for a discussion with a capital D, can I also recommend this book? It is called The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology and the Origins Debate. It's a snappy title. Um, It is actually very sciencey, and that's the technical word. Um, As a non-sciencey person, however, I found it very accessible, really engaging. I devoured it, would thoroughly recommend it. So there are two resources if that is where you're at this evening. So, to Genesis 1. Where do we even start with this? Well, by way of introduction, I would like to tell you about a period in my life from about 15 years ago. Um, My husband, who is my husband now, wasn't my husband then, we met in London. And very quickly after we met, my husband then moved to China. He assures me those two events were not in any way related. Um, He had a job in Shanghai, I stayed in London, which meant we spent the majority of our dating and indeed our engaged lives on separate continents. There are pros and cons to that approach. Uh, Now, in those days, can you imagine Zoom had not been invented? The internet was still pretty sketchy, so Skype was a bit of a nightmare, and uh, phones were both expensive and a challenge because of the time difference. Uh, so what we did is we resorted to letter writing. Yes, with actual paper and actual pens. And these weren't just sort of the occasional little note. These were seven-page missives twice a week. There was a lot of writing backwards and forwards. I genuinely don't know how we did it back then, but we made the time. We were in love. Now. We still are, just to clarify. Now, if you were to go to our house now, you would find in our attic a box, sort of this size, beautiful box, and in the box are all of Tom's letters to me, yeah. I'm not sure where my letters are, if I'm being honest, but we'll move on. Now, I'd like you to imagine 200 years into the future. We've gone 15 years into the past. We're now going 200 years into the future. A distant relative of ours uh, has done some digging into her family tree, and she has discovered that she has a distant relative called Tom, and what's more, Tom was a lawyer, and not just any lawyer, one of the first-class legal minds of his generation. And this really excites our distant relative because she is training to be a lawyer herself. What are the chances? She remembers this box of letters back at her parents' house, and she works out that these letters have been written by this same Tom, Tom the lawyer, and she thinks, ''This is brilliant. This is perfect. Here, I will have direct access to his legal mind.'' I'll read these letters and learn what it takes to be a lawyer. I'll get advice on drafting contracts, negotiating deals, and working out how to reply to emails at 3 a.m. when they come in unfailingly. And so she starts to read Tom's letters expectantly. But as she does so, our distant relative gets more and more frustrated. She can't find anything about the law in these letters. There is absolutely no legal advice, no wisdom on contracts, nothing. In the end, she thinks, these letters are useless. And she throws them away in a rage because she's training to be a lawyer. Now, here's the thing, here's the thing. Tom's letters were never intended to be an explanation of what it means to be a lawyer. And they were never intended to offer any sort of legal advice whatsoever to get the best out of these letters, to really understand them, our relative would have to know what Tom's reason was for writing the letters. And Tom's reason for writing the letters was a way of telling the person that he loved that he loved her, that he missed her, that he was looking forward to sharing the rest of his life with her. Whilst he may have, he does, have a top class legal mind, these letters were never intended to be a legal instruction manual. And if you don't understand that, you'll miss the whole point of why they were written. And at best, you'll be a bit perplexed. And at worst, you'll be deeply disappointed. Which brings us beautifully to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 was not actually written to address our modern scientific concerns and questions. And actually, reading Genesis 1 as a scientific account of the world as we understand science is a relatively modern approach. John Calvin, the John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer and Bible commentator, said this of Genesis, he who would learn astronomy and other recondite arts let him go elsewhere. In other words, questions about how the world was actually made, the nuts and the bolts and the scientific theories, were never intended to be answered by Genesis 1. And if we read the text wanting answers to the how questions, we are gonna come away at best feeling a little bit perplexed and at worst, deeply disappointed and inclined to disregard the text altogether. So, if Genesis 1 wasn't written as a scientific document in the way we understand scientific documents, what is it? Why was it written? Well, scholars date Genesis to around 2000 BC. There's a little bit of wiggle room there. And it was written in the ancient Near East. And amongst the cultures of the time, including Mesopotamia and the early Babylonian empires, there were stories of the origins of the world. Now, these weren't just little sort of folk tales that a few people knew. These were woven into the fabric of society. They were a way of telling people, this is who you are and this is why you are here. And it's important to know this because Genesis follows the same model of these creation accounts, but, and here's the key thing, the author then makes very deliberate changes. In other words, the author of Genesis, under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, we believe that the Bible is God's word breathed to us. The author was writing to a group of people to say, The culture and society that we live in says this about who you are and why you are here. But that is not the truth. It is not the truth. Let me show you what is. And this is important because it's foundational. It's foundational to your faith, your identity, everything. And that is true for us today. Get the foundations wrong and everything you build on them is at risk of collapsing. So what is the truth that the author of Genesis is wanting to teach us? Well, I've done quite a lot of reading on Genesis 1 in preparation for this sermon, and let me tell you, there is a lot. There are a lot of truths in here. It's a very rich chapter. Tonight, I'm just going to focus on two truths, two truths, and both these truths are about God. Here's the first one. There is only one God. There is only one God. Look at verse 1 with me. In the beginning, God... Let's pause there. In the beginning, God. Or as another translation puts it, first this, God. First this, God. The very first thing that the author of Genesis is wanting to say is that there is only one God. This is in direct contrast to the other main creation accounts of the day. Those accounts do not begin with God. They begin with God's plural. A vast array of gods and goddesses, including, incidentally, the very powerful sun and moon god. That is why, in verse 16, the author of Genesis deliberately does not name the sun and moon. He doesn't want to give any wiggle room. He just calls them the greater light and the lesser light. They are not gods, he says. What is the truth? Of Genesis 1 that there is only one God. Now you might be thinking well this is great Becca this is this is great but I'm not I'm not really sure you need to make this into an entire point in your sermon. I mean we're all here in church and I guess most of us are probably monotheists. We believe in one God so super next point. Here's the thing I think we rush over the truth and the implications of one God at our peril. The statement that there is only one God was and still is so important to Jews that it formed the basis for the Shema, the daily prayer, the prayer that was said in the morning and the evening based on Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Good job. This was the prayer that Jesus, being a Jew, himself would have said twice a day, every day for the whole of his life. And when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? How does he begin? He begins by reciting the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is? Yes, well done. First this, God. Why is this so important? What's going on? Why does the author of Genesis start here? Well, by way of illustration, let me tell you about our new kitten, Hazel. Um, we have Hazel because, sadly, Matilda is no more, but that's, that's fine. We've all grieved. We've moved on. We now have Hazel. Yay! Hazel is a delight, and like any small creatures, um, Hazel loves to play. One of her favorite toys... Um Well, it's just a stick, but it's a stick with a bit of interest. It's a sort of stick, and attached to one end is a long bit of string. and At the end of the string is a ball. It's very exciting. What you do is you hold the stick and you wiggle it, and obviously the ball flicks from side to side, and Hazel loves this. One of the things you can do is you can hold it up so the ball is just slightly beyond Hazel's reach and that forces her to stand up on her hind paws. Not a natural position for a cat, it has to be said. She's sort of standing like this, and then you wiggle the ball from side to side, and Hazel sort of dance like this. Uh, And as the game goes on, eventually it gets more and more frantic, and Hazel uh, wobbles and falls over. Which, as I'm saying this out loud, doesn't sound too fun. She loves it, she's having fun, she's purring, I'm having fun, she's having fun. Now, question, why does Hazel fall over? Can I suggest it's because Hazel doesn't know where to fully commit all her energy and focus? Should I go here? No, I should go here. No, I should go here. She wobbles and wobbles. She becomes destabilized. She falls over. Her attention is pulled in multiple different directions. Why does the author of Genesis begin with one God? Because he knows that when we allow other gods to demand our worship, and by worship I mean our time, our focus, our energy, our adoration, when we allow other gods, whether it is the Mesopotamian womb goddess, or whether it's the gods of sex, money, power, social media today, when we allow other gods to demand our worship, we will always become destabilized. Who's in charge? Who should I listen to? Where should I put my money, my time, my focus? Who has the right to speak into my life and tell me how to live? We become split. We become torn. The foundations of our life become unstable. No, says the author of Genesis 1, there is only one God, and he alone deserves our full attention, our full focus, our worship. First this, God. There is only one God. The second foundational truth of Genesis 1 is that God is a good God. There is one God and he is a good God. Did you notice the almost pulse-like beat throughout this text? God does something, he speaks or he creates or he makes, and then comes the phrase God saw that it is good. God saw that it is good. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21 and 25. These are the good actions of a good God. Again, (laughs) This might not sound too radical to our modern ears, but when compared with the other creation accounts of the time, this is mind-blowing stuff. The other accounts start with gods, plural, and these gods are vindictive. They are engaged in power struggles. They are often at war with each other. In one account, creation itself is formed from the bloodied corpse of a fallen god. And It is ripped in half, and one half is used to make the sky, and one half is used to make the earth. Humanity itself comes out of anger and discontent. Some of the gods are angry that they have to provide food for the other gods, and they say, make humans, and they will be our slaves, and they will make food for us. And At the end of it all, The gods regret ever having made humanity, and they spend a lot of time trying to wipe humanity out. Can you see now how different Genesis is? Here is God, alone, unchallenged, all-powerful and without needs, creating an environment for humanity to thrive in, an environment which provides food for them and not the other way around. All over creation is this pulse-like declaration. It is good. It is good. It is good. Why? Because it is made by a good God. The dominant theme of Genesis 1 is a good God creating out of a place of joy and delight and excitement. There is another even earlier um, creation account in the Bible. It's in Job chapter 38, and there we read that there is not only a pulse like beat of goodness over creation, but there's also, while it's going on, a deafening, glorious roar. God says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. The biblical picture of creation is one of a party, it is a celebration. It is a thunderous, ear-deafening, glorious chorus which is focused around a good, good God creating a good, good world. And that is radically different. And can I suggest that is both as glorious and as challenging today as it was 3,000 years ago. Why? Because instinctively, when we see a magnificent mountain or a beautiful sunrise, something within us wells up Something wants to celebrate and praise. Something within us says, this is good. But, but, what about the parts of creation which do not seem good? Earthquakes, hurricanes, flooding, volcanoes. Coming perhaps more to the heart of the matter, what about those parts of our own lives that do not seem good? disappointments, hurts, disease, death. How do those things fit with a good, good God? Well, the answers to some of those questions uh, about what went wrong with this good, good world will be answered in coming weeks as we look at the next few chapters in Genesis. And there we will learn how this good God created humanity, which was very good, incidentally, but also which was free, free to make their own decisions and choices. And we're going to learn that even when humanity chose to turn away from this good God, God chose not to turn away from us. He decided to embark on a rescue plan that was as both magnificent as it was costly, a plan which involves sending his son Jesus to die for us. Why? So that we can be part of God's new creation. But for now, But for now, allow me to draw your attention to a detail in tonight's passage that I think might help us as we seek to live in a world which is created good, but which contains some things which are not good. Take a look with me at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Let's pause there. Formless and empty. In Hebrew, these words are tohu vavohu. And they're a little bit hard to put into English, but essentially they mean a wild, chaotic, utterly uninhabitable environment. What does God do with this wild, chaotic, uninhabitable environment? Well, he brings order out of it. God speaks, and out of the chaos comes light. God speaks, and out of the depths are formed dry land. God speaks, and out of the chaos brings life, abundant life. This is a God who brings order out of chaos. That is what he does. And if you want further proof, just look at Jesus. God incarnate, look at how he behaved when he came here on earth. When confronted with chaos in nature through storms, Jesus spoke. Peace, be still. Chaos, uh, order out of chaos. When confronted with chaos in our bodies through disease and sickness, Jesus spoke, be healed. Order out of chaos. When confronted with the ultimate symbol of terrifying chaos, death itself, Jesus spoke, it is finished. Dying so that death might be forever defeated. Ultimate order out of ultimate chaos. And one day, because of Jesus' sacrifice, God will make all things new. He will restore creation to all that he intended it to be. Order without chaos. Life without death. Chaos will not have the last word. God will. But until then, until then, our good God promises to be with creation, to be with us as we face the chaos that is still part of our broken world. Take a look with me at verse 2. This tells us how he does this. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God is with us through his Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus described literally as the helper, And not only does the Holy Spirit continue to hover over creation, but if we have accepted Jesus' offer of forgiveness, he lives in us, working to bring order out of the chaos of our own lives. Working so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, we know that in all things, no matter how chaotic, God is working for the good of those who love him. Why? Why? Because he is a good God, and this is what he does. Despite what culture and society and the enemy of our souls would want us to believe, there is only one God who is worthy of our worship, and he is good. What he does, including what he creates, is good. That means that despite the chaos we see around us and we find ourselves in sometimes, we can trust him. This is the start of everything. This is the truth. Build your lives on these foundations and you will not be shaken. To finish, I'd like us to think about one question What do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? Because really, that's what Genesis 1 is seeking to answer, isn't it? What is God like? What is God like? To help us think about this, I'd love us, or I'd invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes open just so I can continue to read my notes. But um, close your eyes, and I'd like you, as you close your eyes, to think about your week ahead. And specifically, I'd like you to think about this coming Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Some of you will know exactly where you are and what you're going to be doing at 10 a.m. on Tuesday. Some of you will just have a vague idea. Maybe you'll be sitting in a lecture, watching TV, writing an email, doing a presentation, unloading the washing machine, caring for someone. Whatever it is, as you think about this coming Tuesday morning, I want you to imagine that as you do what you do, God is there with you in whatever you're doing, watching you. Pause what you're doing. Look at God. What is God doing? What do you think God's feeling? What might God want you to know? With your eyes still closed, let me tell you what I think God might be doing based on Genesis 1. I think to start, God is smiling when he looks at you. This might make some of you feel very, very uncomfortable. Perhaps you don't feel worthy of God's smile. But you are. And then I think God might want to say to you, I see you. I see what you're doing. And I love you. I see you and I love you. Pause for a second. Let that sink in. The creator of the universe who made the stars also sees you and loves you. Now, if you feel comfortable, why don't you take a moment to tell God about some of the chaos that you are facing? It might be directly related to where you are at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, or it might be something completely different. But take some time to tell God about your chaos. And then why not ask for his help? You might want to simply pray, Lord, please bring order out of this chaos. Feel free to stay in an attitude of prayer. We're going to now have some time to further pray, to worship, to think about some of these things that might have come out of this passage tonight. The band are going to play a couple of songs, and I just want to encourage you, why not use this time to talk to the creator of the universe? This might be something you have never done. (laughs) You might be deeply skeptical. Why not give it a go? Why not see what happens? you might be surprised if you are facing some sort of chaos and I know that for some of us here there's some real stuff going on and you would love someone to pray with you you don't have to tell them what's going on but they can just be praying with you Um, feel free to come to the front we're all going to stand together don't worry about what anyone else thinks they're all going to be doing their own business with God there's going to be people from the prayer ministry team here who would love to pray with you and just in in this chaos. so why don't we stand together and I will pray for us And so we pray, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you just hover over us today as you did during Genesis? Would you just hover? Creator God, thank you that you long to speak to us. Would you help us to hear what it is you want to say today? We give you this time. We give you our worship. We just pray, come, Holy Spirit. Amen.